page 1161. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we've been thinking through these months of what it means to hold a courageous Christian faith. Speak to us again this evening, we pray. And help us to hear, to respond, and to go out of here tonight rejoicing in you and believing you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I've got a question for us this evening. How do you distinguish a fake from the real thing? Um, I met a woman called Anne last week. She is at the extreme end of the autistic spectrum. Um, and she said, among other things, you shouldn't think of autism as a disability. You and I just have different abilities. So she said, for example, whilst I am face blind, do you know what face blindness is? Uh, as she looks at faces, they all look the same. She doesn't even easily distinguish the face of her son. Although I'm face blind, she says, I have an uncanny sensory perception that can tell the difference between a genuine and fake painting. In fact, she said, I'm 200 times quicker and more effective than the most expert art connoisseur at detecting the difference between a genuine and a fake Van Gogh. And they employ me, art dealers and connoisseurs, to give the first impression and then to back it up with science, which usually always um, uh, vindicates me. I said to her, how do you tell the difference between a genuine and a fake? She said, I don't know, I just do. Let me push the question further. How do you distinguish an idol, that is, a fake object of worship, from the real object of worship, one worth worshipping? I'm thinking of setting up a conversation going among us on idols of our time. Because we're surrounded by them, they're very difficult for us to detect. It's easy to detect in a different culture, but not so easy in our own. As you know, as I've just prayed, we've been thinking of what a, a courageous faith looks like. But of course, many others make claims to courage. Uh, here's one possible candidate for an idol of our time. And notice the appeal to courage and the religious overtones throughout. This is Helen Lewis writing in the Sunday Times. Apple used to be an easy company to love, but of late it has become unbearably pompous. At the launch last week of the iPhone 7, in a 7,000-seat auditorium in San Francisco, Apple executives took two interminable hours to announce various technical updates, with all the gravity of Moses delivering the stone tablets. They talked of changing the world. Why did we decide to drop the 3.5mm headphone jack from the iPhone 7, asked marketing senior vice president Philip Schuller. It comes down to one word. Courage. Courage to move on. Courage to do something new that betters all of us. The mood was reminiscent of a Mooney mass wedding. Dishwasher manufacturers don't carry on like this. Imagine it, a reverent hush as the boss of Zanussi announces a minor improvement to the drain hose. Thunderous applause at the news that the cutlery basket will be able to take twice as many forks. 
But the US tech industry suffers from a bad case of Silicon Valley syndrome. Convinced that it is, quotes, molding humanity with its every act, it has swallowed its own hype. No wonder obeying national laws or paying taxes feels like such an imposition. Uh, I've actually got uh, two of their household gods because I lost one, got another one, and then found the old one that I'd lost. So if anybody would like one of my household gods, um, come and have a word with me afterwards. But let me ask again, how do you distinguish fake Christianity from real Christian faith? And I ask this with no sense of superiority or arrogance. We can all present a fake image of the Christian faith. And if we do, tell us. But here's a well-known Christian pastor, a Baptist pastor, who writes this. Tell me, what is your image of Christianity? Oh, ladies in hats, perhaps? A Sunday school of six-year-olds singing Jesus Wants Me for a Butterfly? A couple of nervous, pimply students offering you an invitation to a coffee party at the College Christian Union? Is that what puts you off Christianity? That it's all just so wet? Or is it the showy professionalism of mass evangelism that antagonizes you? The gleaming transatlantic smile that beams down at you from the video relay? The unscrupulous emotionalism of the appeal fanned by humming choirs and tear-stained faces? Is that what turns you off? The mass evangelistic spectacular with its glossy advertising? Or perhaps it's the respectable image of the church that you dislike those rows of new cars parked outside each Sunday, those terribly nice people who appear to have got it all together in their frightfully chic outfits that you meet inside, the vicar who talks with a plum in his mouth, or those delicate cucumber sandwiches his wife offers you at the tea party. Is it all too middle class? Well, don't be misled by wimpish Christian caricatures. Don't be put off by examples of Christian showmanship. Don't be deterred by images of Christian affluence. There's plenty of so-called Christianity in this world that is pathetically fashionable, superficially showy, and boringly trite. It turns my stomach, and I don't mind in the least if you tell me it turns yours too. But the existence of a thousand fakes doesn't mean that there is no such thing as the genuine diamond. So I ask again, how can you tell the real from the fake? The genuine article from the counterfeit? Well, if you've got it open, chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians gives us some evidence of the genuine diamond. In the marks of real Christian courage before us, now, the background is this. The Apostle Paul has been subject to severe critics. They've said his leadership style is unimpressive. As an apostle, he lacks assertiveness. As a preacher, he lacks eloquence. And so in both his first and now his second letter to them, he's been explaining to them often very movingly 
why he exercises the kind of ministry he does. If I were to be the kind of leader these friends of yours want me to be, I wouldn't be a true apostle of Jesus Christ. I wouldn't be passing on to you the genuine article. I'd just be a peddler of cheap fakes. So Paul refuses to present a, a false image, either of himself or of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Instead, he points up some marks of genuine Christian courage, the real thing. And the first is the courage to endure. Look at verse 3. He says, We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. Paul has suffered anguish, torture, deprivation of all kinds. His commitment to Jesus required such perseverance. Why did he put himself through it? Well, he says because he didn't want to put anybody off Jesus Christ. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path. Paul considers the courage to endure to be vital in commending his faith in Jesus Christ. Here's a second mark, the courage to have integrity. In purity, he says, verse 6, just look at it, understanding, patience, and kindness in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. You may have heard of the challenge, if your life was put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Well, Paul says, examine any part of my life, my private life, my social relationships, my spiritual life, my walk with God, my teaching. There's no audience manipulation, no false advertising, no misleading propaganda. I just simply live and speak the good news of the gospel. And I trust God's power to validate it. You notice that phrase, in truthful speech and in the power of God. Because Paul considers integrity of life to be vital in commending his faith in Jesus. Here's a third mark, the courage to be content. Look at verse 8, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. Paul's reputation suffered wilder swings of the pendulum 
than you or I will ever experience. One moment everyone was cheering him, the next moment they were waving their fists at him. One moment they were falling to their knees to worship him. Do you remember that incident in Lystra when a crippled man was healed through him? And they started to fall down and worship him and he said, Why are you looking at us as if we did this? The next moment, maybe that very day, they stoned him. They didn't just attempt to, they actually did. He must have been unconscious because they dragged him out of the city and left him for dead. Where the Christians recovered him and he revived. And do you know what he did? As soon as he'd revived, he went back into the city to carry on preaching. But the point is this. One day he's hailed as an apostle of Christ, the next he's scorned as an imposter. But the praise never impressed him, and the scorn never depressed him. There was a resilience and a contentment about him, just like his master, Jesus, who's the one person who suffered the same as him and even more. So, of course, Paul's contentment commends faith in Jesus. It's so like Jesus. And fourthly, and finally, but I'm going to take a little bit more time on it, the courage to be different. And the famous phrase in verse 14, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, the picture is taken from a command in the book of Deuteronomy that forbids plowing with an ox and an ass harnessed together. In fact, it was a general principle that the people of God were to avoid becoming a motley bunch, a mixture. Or as we might use in a more modern phrase, spiritually they were to avoid a checkered career. And so God gave them these symbols They're very simple ones, but they were before their eyes daily, like visual aids. Not to sow two different crops in the same field, not to weave two different fibers in the same material. It was just a very simple way of reminding them of their call to distinctiveness. They were to avoid the impurity of the pagan religions around them. And boy, were they impure. They indulged in things like child sacrifice. They were to be holy and separate from the horrors of religious syncretism. That is the attempt to mix all the religions together. Now, we live in the age of the new covenant with Jesus. That's where we live today, and all those religious symbols have been superseded. But the principle remains. It's no longer a question of not yoking an ox and an ass together, but not yoking the church and the world. First, Paul says, it's incongruous. Just look at it, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Verse 15, what harmony is there between Christ and Belial? 
Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? So that a Christian has to live in the same world as an unbeliever, but does not belong to the same world and cannot negotiate some kind of compromise with it. Second, he says, it's sacrilegious, for we are temples of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk with them, and I will be their God and they will be my people. So that the church isn't just a a human club. It's a supernatural institution in which God lives by his spirit. And so to get entangled with worldly idols is a contempt for the holy sanctuary of God. And thirdly, he says, it's disobedient. Look at verse 17. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So that we're to be obedient children of a heavenly father, and not let ourselves get corrupted by the world around us. Now comes the big question What does this mean in practice? Well, it doesn't mean that Paul is advocating monasticism. In his first letter, Paul had told them not to mix with immoral people. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But they had completely misunderstood what he meant. So he had to write and explain. I didn't mean immoral unbelievers, you must mix with them for the sake of sharing the gospel. Now, what I meant was, you mustn't mix with Christians, people who call themselves Christians, who are immoral, greedy, swindlers, or idolaters. But it's no call to monasticism, to leave the world. Jesus said, we are to live in the world, but not of the world. Secondly, there is no direct reference here to business partnerships or marriage or joining certain kinds of political parties. Some have argued that Paul is forbidding virtually anything that's enjoyable. Ask my wife about her Plymouth Brethren background. But no. What Paul is calling them to dissociate from is any kind of idol that takes the place of God. And the immediate context is the version of Christianity they were being offered from false leaders in Corinth, compromising with worldly ideas and worldly methods come out from them. Now, Jesus used the picture of the yoke in the same way, if you remember. Come to me, he said, all you who are weary and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Don't go to the Pharisees. They won't give you rest. They'll just add 
burdens to your back. Take my yoke upon you. Get yoked up to me, not to them. Now, do you see, the picture of the yoke is primarily about the choices we make of those we allow to strongly influence us. They might be mentors, home group leaders, prayer partners, spiritual directors, counselors, preachers, church leaders. This is a verse for the parish representatives who will in due course choose your next vicar. And I hasten to add, it's not for a few years yet, so don't hold your breath. But if before then you move out of London, don't get yoked with an unbelieving church leader. One who doesn't believe Paul's and the other apostles' version of Scripture, or who don't desire Paul's and the other apostles' gifts of the Spirit. That's the twin ministry, the ministry of word and spirit. Don't get yoked up to an ass. Real Christianity sits under the word of God in the Bible and yearns for the spirit of God in power. And real Christianity is willing to be different. It doesn't just endorse secular culture or a worldly church that follows the drift of secular culture. It challenges it. Well, here, and I think I said some things just now which were not what you were expecting me and predicting that I'd say, but just to make you think, make all of us think, here are some of the marks of the genuine as opposed to the fake. The courage to endure adversity is one. And the courage of an impeccable personal life is a second. The courage to meet triumph and disaster with contentment is a third, or as Kipling famously put it, to treat both impostors just the same. And the courage to be Christianly different, not just to be different, but to be Christianly different, is a fourth. One writer put it, people are simply waiting to see Christians who are willing to be different, to be misfits among the world's conventions, a disturbance of the world's complacency, a question mark against the world's ideologies, a contradiction to the world's consensus, a threat to the world's psychological security, a thorn in the world's side. That Baptist minister I quoted at the beginning, he continued like this. The Christianity Paul is writing about is the only sort of Christianity that interests me. It's a Christianity that demands commitment, perseverance, whatever the hardships, integrity, whatever the temptation, contentment, whatever the circumstances. Christianity like that did not come to an end with the Apostle Paul. It's around now, today. Pierced beneath the veneer of sanctimoniousness and religiosity that you despise so much, and you will find it. An adventurous, courageous, eccentric Christianity. 
a Christianity that sends a brilliant mathematician to be a missionary in the South American jungle. I think that's a reference to Henry Martin. That sends an attractive young nurse to be a Red Cross worker in Beirut. That sends a businessman earning hundreds of thousands of pounds a year to run a hostel for homeless in the East End of London. And for every story like that, there are dozens of others. Less dramatic, maybe, in their vocation, but just as devoted in their commitment, living lives of quiet self-sacrifice for Jesus Christ. You may not want that Christianity any more than you want any of the other kinds. It may be altogether too fanatical for your taste. But if you reject it, I suggest that it will not be because you have shown up those Christians for the hypocrites that they are, but maybe those Christians have shown you up for what you are a floating voter, a spiritual don't know, a person who's far too scared to be committed to anything, least of all Jesus Christ, who demands too much. Now, if there's a stumbling block in your way, may I suggest to you that it's not really the Christians who put it there, though you may try to make out that it is. The stumbling block may be in your own lack of willingness to courageous commitment. You know there are Christians whose lives you secretly admire. The question the Bible is putting to us is, have we got the guts to be as committed to Christ as they are? Strong words. And I don't think I would have said them as a challenge to you from myself, which is why I read them from someone else. God's promise to those who do make that courageous commitment to Jesus. Look at those last words. I will receive you. I'll be a father to you. And you'll be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Let's stand, shall we?